Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, and on today's episode, I'm excited to share with you the premiere segment of a new series from award-winning news anchor Anne-Marie Schieber. In this series, Anne will be exploring the connection between work and virtue, talking with business people about how they find purpose and fulfillment in their job every day. Today, Anne takes us into the studio of Matthew Noikos, a violin maker here in Grand Rapids, giving us a peek behind the scenes of Luthier's craft. Then on the Upstream segment, where culture is upstream from politics, host Bruce Walker speaks with Robert Byrd, who's the author of two books on Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. Bruce and Robert discuss one of Tarkovsky's films to be newly reissued by the Criterion Collection, Andrei Rublev, and why this movie has lasting importance. If you're interested in any books, articles, or more resources mentioned in the episode today, you'll find them linked in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.actin.com. So I guess this goes along with being uh, um, an aficionado of fine string instruments. Um, ever since I got into this, I, I appreciate fine things, I would say, or, or things that are made well, or things that take time to make. A $2,000 Italian cappuccino machine with home-roasted coffee beans is not the first thing you'd expect to find in a violin sure. maker's workshop. But for Matthew Noikos, it is a metaphor for what he does. There you go. That is really impressive. I think you beat Starbucks. <laughs> By profession, Matthew is not a barista, but a luthier. A, a loot maker, I guess, is, is what it technically is, but it's not, um, <laughs> not a lot of loot makers anymore. This is a sound you hear a lot of uh, Aubrey's in there tuning up an instrument. In the modern sense, luthiers build, repair, and restore string instruments. And in a world in which Beyonce and computer-generated music dominate, make no mistake, Noikos is plenty busy. He co-owns Grand Rapids Violins with another luthier, a bass player with the City Symphony. Noikos has advanced degrees in music performance himself, but it is the engineering of a fine instrument that is his true calling. It doesn't have to be saving the world single-handedly I can just be in my one corner and make a beautiful violin and that would be a pretty worthwhile purpose. We're at the workshop office space. Looks like an office space. Yeah. You would never think there was a violin shop back here. I actually thought a lot about lighting so when people first come into this room I had wanted them to have a feeling of uh, warmth and uh, comfort. Noikos takes me on the tour, and the first place we stop is the showroom, where musicians from all parts of the U.S. bring their range of requests. There are the particular... They have their own calipers that they bring, and they measure everything within a tenth of a millimeter. And then there are those who can't explain what's wrong. That's where art meets science, and Noikos's music background comes into play. I can get a lot of things based on how they're playing, little visual cues. They're playing higher up on the, uh, the string, closer to the fingerboard. You know, they're trying to get some more flexibility, and they're just naturally doing this, so then I might make an adjustment based on seeing that. Next, we go to the room where the work begins. But the tools that we use are things that were used for 400, 500 years. So Stradivari could um, 
probably come into our shop and get to work, except for this room. We have a, a lathe here. Today, luthiers use power tools to an extent. This stuff right here is Italian spruce. What's fascinating in this room is the collection of tone wood from reaches of the globe in time. Did you know a piece of wood could sing? Tap it and see how it's... There we go. Yeah. And when varnished, the grain is like a piece of art. Naturally, the finer the characteristics, the more money. Noikos procures his wood like a fine wine collector with scraps of wood having comparable prices. Some of the wood outlasts you. And I think it's a sort of a beautiful thing in my mind that, that some of my wood um, would be used by somebody else someday. Constantly cleaning. Next, Noikos shows me the room where he spends most of his time, where he restores very old instruments and creates new ones. Uh, right now... I'm making a viola. Shaping wood with hand yeah. tools that are as much an art as Actually. the instruments they create. This is a um, uh, Japanese chisel. The chisel by a master blacksmith has its own signature marks, much like Noiko's leaves when he carves a scroll. Every time I use this thing, I think I, I get a certain feeling for its beauty and also the person who made it. Human flourishing. One creation begets another. Sure, string instruments can be mass-produced, but there is something about the human touch that extends time, that connects the past to the present to the future, something Matthew Noikos, violin maker, never forgets. You have an ultimate creator who created a universe. Um, and I'm not creating a universe, but I have a small section of the universe that I'm, I'm doing some creation in where I'm making things, I'm designing things, I'm having decisions that go into to what I'm building. Uh, and I think in some way it's doing something in the image of God. In the face of fiscal irresponsibility, soaring deficits, sweeping new healthcare regulations, and an uncontrollable national debt, the Acton Institute offers a fresh and unique perspective. For over 28 years, the Institute has worked to connect economic freedom, free enterprise, and entrepreneurship with a vibrant Judeo-Christian moral culture. Please join Reverend Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of Acton Institute, and other supporters and friends of Acton on Wednesday, October 24th in beautiful downtown Fort Worth for an evening cocktail reception, dinner, and a special keynote address. To save your spot at this popular event, register now at acton.org events. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and this week we're going to celebrate a reissue of a restored version of a 1966 film, Andrei Rublev, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. And we have the great pleasure to speak with Robert Byrd, who is the Associate Professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures and the Department of Cinema Media Studies. Hello, Professor Byrd. How are you today? Fine, thank you. It's a wonderful day here in Chicago. How are you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. And it's very nice here in Grand Rapids as well. Now, Professor Byrd is a translator, editor, author. He has written two books on Tarkovsky. Tell us a little bit about uh, Andrei Tarkovsky and, and why is he important? Why is he considered a significant film director? Well, Tarkovsky was born in, in 1932 uh, in Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, he lived through the war, of course. He had, a, he had a pretty difficult childhood and youth. 
uh, after trying a di couple different things academically, he settled on a career in film. He enrolled at the Soviet uh, Institute for Film, which was the central institution for uh, film directors and, and um, technicians of various kinds. Um, and he completed that in 1960 uh, with a film that he called Steamroller and Violin. It's a very youthful film. And it, it was very standard, in a way, for, for Soviet cinema. I don't think anyone could have foreseen what was coming after that. But with his next film, 1962, Ivan's Childhood, he took over a project that had been failing with a different director, and he made it into something completely unseen before, this film about uh, a young boy in World War II, a scout. Um, and it, it's a very interesting story, in a way, how he takes this, screenplay, and he used uh, very specific technical devices, including what we call long takes, where, when there's a long, unbroken passage of acting uh, before the camera, and made this film into a very contemplative study of the child actor's interior life. And this was a, a tremendous success. It won the uh, Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 1962. Tarkovsky came and showed the film at the San Francisco Film Festival, which occurred right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that gives you a sense of the political atmosphere, the importance at that time of uh, globally of, of someone really accessing a kind of interior experience uh, in the Soviet Union, this uh, you know, evil empire, as it wasn't yet called, but was widely considered. Uh, so Tarkovsky becomes one of the faces of a new Soviet Union, a youthful Soviet Union. He also enters, brings the Soviet Union, Soviet cinema back into the world uh, system of cinema, where it really hadn't played a part for a, at least a couple of decades since the Soviet avant-garde of the 1920s with Eisenstein, Putovkin, and Davzhenko, and these other great Soviet filmmakers. So he was widely lauded and, and given... Uh, a lot of latitude in the Soviet system, which he used then to, to make this film, Andrei Rublev, his second major film, second full-length film. And listeners would probably be uh, more familiar with uh, Tarkovsky for being the director of the original version of Solaris that was remade in the United States. As a matter of fact, that's the only film of Tarkovsky's that has been remade in the West. That's correct. Uh, at various times, various films of his have uh, been most prominent. Uh, for many years, Andrei Rublev really was the one that people associated most with his name. It was very widely seen um, in the West. It, it won uh, a prize, several prizes, at the Cannes Film Festival in 1969, after which it was released widely. It was shown in the Soviet Union only in 1971, so that's um, five years after the film was completed. Um, because of the various controversies over its uh, the, the thematics, religious thematics, but also the, the focus on the interior life of the hero. Solaris is a um, science fiction film, uh, the, the one he completed after Andrei Rublev, after a long layoff while Tarkovsky was fighting to get uh, Rublev released. So that's completed in 1972 and released again internationally, but... Um, I'd say to maybe it was it had less scandal associated with it, so it was um, less uh, well publicized. And then in 1980, he completed a film called Stalker, again a, a science fiction 
film based on a, a Soviet novel, a uh, science fiction novel that had been published, was more or less mainstream in, in the Soviet Union. Um, and in my perception right now, Stalker is the one that uh, is probably most popular, is most widely screened. Uh, it was released in a uh, rest restored version last year uh, and, and toured around, and uh, there was a, a, a new uh, DVD and Blu-ray edition of that at the time uh, from Criterion. Uh, and in fact, last year, I was quite surprised I went to a, a, a mainstream film called Atomic Blonde, which is a spy film set in the waning days of uh, East Berlin. And uh, the heroine of that film goes to see Stalker yeah. in, in the, uh, the grand film palace in the, in the middle of um, East Berlin. So those three films, Rublev, Solaris, and Stalker, are the three that are, have over the years been, been the ones that are most widely screened, most widely recognized. Um, but when people ask me what my favorite Tarkovsky film is, uh, I, always, I, I, I have started answering that question at least by saying that the one I've seen most recently, because they, they all um, leave a very deep impression on me every single time. Okay, well, let's talk, let's hone in a little bit on Andrei Rublev. It, it was completed in 1966, but it was continuously revised afterwards before finally getting an approved Soviet release in 1971. And there are several versions of the film. Now, what are the main differences between the different versions of the film, and which one has Criterion reissued? The film was completed at the at the end of 1966 in a in a long and relatively rough cut that lasted uh, 205 minutes, and we go by the length uh, basically when we're talking about the different versions. And that one is marked. Uh, it, it's it was actually titled "The Passion According to Andre" and has been uh, released under that title in the last couple of decades, um, although it was never released during Tarkovsky's lifetime. It is marked by particularly long takes and long and enigmatic um, sequences that can take up to several minutes where nothing really happens. The camera very frequently is, is, uh, is moving through the frame, through the space, from character to character. Personally, that's my favorite. Uh, I, I, I like the slow pace of Tarkovsky's films. I feel that that represents the original sequencing of, of the episodes. But it is said that Tarkovsky himself um, was ready to, to have cuts made to that. that um, his cameraman, Vadim Yusuf, who was his cameraman on several early films, including Salaris, uh, said that that they would include in these uh, rough cuts, these initial cuts, white dogs. And he says, you know what a white dog is? It's, it's with uh, portrait painters from the 18th, 19th centuries when they would get a commission to paint a family or an individual. They would always paint in a little white dog in the corner. So when the patron shows up to view the painting, he doesn't focus on the likeness at all. He says, you know, what is this white dog? There was no white dog there. I've never seen that white dog. Get the white dog out of the frame. So they would have these sort of red flags and hope to detract attention, use them as lightning rods, as it were, for the, the various uh, authorities that had to approve a film before it was released, um, all the while smuggling through, as it were, their more um, revolutionary changes. So 
Tarkovsky, in, in the original cut, was ready to make certain changes. He, he received a list, a very long list, of changes from the studio that they were requesting. And he made some of them and produced a second cut at the beginning of 1967. Uh, this is an intermediary one that takes the film down to about 190 minutes. It takes out about 15 minutes. No one has ever seen this, um, at least not since 1967. Yeah, the authorities were still not happy with that. And it took him then three years, um, almost three years, to produce a third version that removes only about five minutes, so it gets down to about 185 minutes. Uh, that the authorities felt could then be released. Um, and that version uh, is the one that was shown in Cannes and then uh, adapted, very often cut even more for, for release in the West because Western viewers can't sit through a three-hour film. Uh, it, at least it is considered. Um, I find that that film uh, compromises the original structure in ways that produce more problems than they result. Uh, it takes out some of the longueurs from the original 205-minute version, but it introduces various uh, discontinuities uh, and inconsistencies in the plot and in the sequencing of episodes. Um, but the result is that we have two versions, the original version and the third version, and Criterion is actually including both of them in new edition, uh, not coming down on one side or the other, but allowing us to make that choice uh, and also make the comparison for ourselves, which I think is very wise. Well, let's, let's talk about what the movie is actually about. There are different movements that are very disparate, but they combine to make an aesthetic whole. And th those movements combine uh, mythopoetics, allegory, and history. That's correct. So the... It, it's not a linear narrative. Uh, in fact, the first episode uh, doesn't feature Rubrov at all. It features a, a medieval hot air balloonist. Um, and this is a, uh, an, an adaptation of a legend that was widespread in the Soviet Union at the time. The Soviet Union uh, promoted itself as the homeland of all great things. Uh, the radio, the TV, everything was invented in the Soviet Union. And, and so they also made a, a claim for the first uh, manned flight. Um, this was based on a, an old forgery of a chronicle. Uh, and I don't think Tarkovsky is interested in promoting the legend, but I take this as a key to the poetics of the film generally, that he's taking something, an, a story that has been handed down to us, correct or false, we don't know, um, and he's trying to get behind it. He's trying to think about the material experience. So we see this flight. It's very unglamorous. It ends in a crash. It ends in a kind of commemoration of the, 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 uh, the balloonist more than anything. But what has happened in the arc of this flight is that for the first time, someone has seen the world from above, uh, from a bird's eye. Standpoint. And in many ways, the film that follows then is following the same kind of arc of a, a painter whom we meet in the, the, the first full episode, who is a monk. Uh, and we, we're going to follow his, as it were, vision through this process of, of burning out, um, really. It's, it's a very hard life. He begins by leaving a monastery together with two of his, part, uh, two of his, his colleagues his fellow monks, they've had some kind of argument. And 
this again is the pattern through the film. We don't see the argument, we don't see the event, we see the aftermath. We see the contemplation of the event after it happens, or sometimes before it happens, or sometimes instead of it happening at all. There are some exceptions to that, uh, most notably in the, the central uh, episode where we have um, a, a big battle. There's a, a subplot concerning two princes who are feuding with each other, and one of them sends, um, some, one of them makes an alliance with the Mongol occupiers who were at the time being pushed out of Russia after two centuries of occupation. Um, one of them makes an alliance with the Mongol occupiers to attack his brother's town, and, we, and Rublev is caught up in this. Uh, his, some of his work is burnt in, in the course of the, the raid, as it's called. Uh, and again, we see him not painting. We never actually see him painting in the film. We see him cleaning and contemplating burnt icons. And all of this culminates in a final scene where Rublev has spent almost 20 years uh, in a vow of silence. We've gone from about 1405 to about 1425 uh, in the chronology of the film. And um, Rublev here becomes the witness of a young bellmaker. It has been said, in fact, uh, Tarkovsky's co-screenwriter, Andrei Konchalovsky, once said that in, in really one could um, get rid of the rest of the film and just leave this one episode, The Bell. It, it goes for quite a long time, almost an hour of screen time. And here we see the construction of this bell by someone who, who he's the son of a bell maker. He himself says he, he doesn't know how to make a bell. But he, he lies and, and beats his way into the position. He's, he's quite a, um, a, a tyrannical taskmaster with his, his fellow uh, bell makers. Uh, but he succeeds, and the bell, again, emerges from this flame uh, to be erected, to be lifted up and rung. And the film ends, then, with the erection of this bell, which rings out, and then we enter into the first time we've seen color in the film. So we've suffered through three hours of, of relatively hard experience, action, pain, and also a denial of maybe visual pleasure. Uh, and we have at the end this relatively brief um, enjoyment of, of uh, the icon itself, uh, lifted up like the bell out of the flames of, of history. Well, I think that's one of the wonderful things about the, the film, and uh, I'm going to quote a little bit from your Elements of Cinema, where you write that uh, reading the rules of church conduct brings the characters closer to God by dramatizing their distance from true understanding. Rublev realizes that, void of love, his words are merely sounding brass, and removing scripture from its usual pragmatic context, the child's voice does not render it transparent, rather it reveals it and all language as an opaque medium that both joins us to and separates us from knowledge. And I, I think that uh, that's wonderful in depicting the film as an allegory for artistic creation, but as well transcendent religious artistic creation. Yeah, I, I really see uh, the film following the via negativa, as it were, the, the path of negation, the apophatic tradition of Russian spirituality, trying to get away from the verbiage of religion and try to get away from the conventions of envisioning the divine, of, of envisioning the world, in, indeed, around us, and to see it again, like that balloonist 
at the beginning of the film, to see it from a new perspective, to see it possibly truly. And first of all, that means purging oneself of all of the false words and false images. I would question, though, whether it ends up being an allegory of this. And I, this is an important point for me. Uh, if, if it is an allegory, then what is important is the story, the, um, the development of the character. And in many ways, I find the film actually performing this negative path in its own representation of Rugrov, that is fate, uh, refusing to fix him in time, in space, as a person, as an actor in his world. And so instead of being an, an allegory, I, I think it is actually a performance of this, uh, this negative path, and, and that becomes an experience for the viewer then. That's fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I wish you and your listeners all the best. Thank you so much, sir. Robert Byrd is associate professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures and the Department of Cinema Media Studies. He's also a translator, editor, and author. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll speak to you again next week. Thank you for listening today. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, you can email us at rfa at acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180. And as always, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nate Moore.